Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who was bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then I am your Lord and teacher, and I have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You may be seated. This morning we start a new series for lessons, talking about some of the most important foundational truths of what it means to be a church. I figured it would be an appropriate time to do that as we wrap up the series that we were studying in the book of Romans chapter 9, and before we pick up the rest of that chapter and the rest of the section from 9 through 11. is an opportunity for me to basically share from my own heart to you, the church, some of the many cares and concerns on my own heart about the subjects that we're going to be covering. We're going to be looking in depth at the ordinances and the offices of the church. That would be baptism and communion, deacons and elders. We're going to be studying the reality that we are commanded as a church to defend and to teach truth. We're also going to understand better what it means to be accountable to one another, to hold the elders of the church accountable to 
give a, an account for the souls under their care and therefore covenanting together to know who those souls are. And we'll talk about church membership. And then we're also going to talk about what it means to understand discipleship and discipline in the context of a local church. So that's kind of the big picture overview of where we're going to go. And we're going to cover a lot of different passages. We're not going to be in one in particular. But there's always going to be one that more or less serves as an all-encompassing truth that I think helps us to understand the context in which we're looking at those subjects. And this morning, that was what I read to you earlier from John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17. Uh, In that amazing section of John's gospel where we see recorded the ministry of Jesus to his disciples, what we see at work is the ultimate cleansing that baptism represents. We see the communion and fellowship that the Lord's table not only depicted in a shadow of what's to come, but in a very real sense there at the Last Supper. We see what it means to be a true servant or deacon of the Lord and the fact that our own Lord said, I came to serve and not be served. And we see what it is like to, being, to be a caring shepherd, a true elder, like the great shepherd, the Lord himself, in the fact that he loved his own and loved them to the very end. In fact, if I were to go back and look at this in terms of the, the four categories of, of ordinances and offices that we're going to look at this morning, I would remind you that they are, number one, baptism, number two, communion, Number three, the role of deacon. And number four, the role of elder. Baptism, communion, deacons, and elders. And just by way of um, approach to this topic, we're going to look at these truths in their context. We want to understand what they are as revealed in God's word. Then we want to see the fulfillment of each in Christ. And then the application of each in the church. So the truth in its context the application in the church, and the fulfillment in Christ. Let's look first at baptism. If you were to study the topic of baptism, you would understand that it is something that is far more in-depth than merely what we see represented in the church today. In, In fact, in the average church, baptism is usually nothing more than somebody standing up before the church and giving a testimony that they used to be somebody who was engaged in a lot of sin and then they had a conversion experience and now they don't sin as much as they used to and then somebody immerses them in water. Or perhaps there's a different denominational tradition and what you come to witness is an infant or a baby where a pastor or a priest dips their finger in a special container of water and puts it on the child and therefore sprinkles or dabs them and baptizes them into a covenant community of believers or into a church. But in reality, the idea of communion or the idea of baptism is much more profound than simply that. In fact, it goes all the way back into the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. As we'll see towards the end of this main point, it goes all the way back to the very beginning, in fact, with Noah, who was baptized or immersed into the ark that he built in order to be protected from the judgment of God. But if we were to look at the actual physical baptizing of somebody, we would go back into the Old Covenant, into the Old Testament, and we would see a picture of that in the Gentile Naaman. Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5, is a man who was a military 
ruler. In fact, he was the leader of the armies of Syria, and he had been plagued with leprosy. And what's so fascinating about the narrative is that the slave girl that served him and his family, a Jewish slave, by the way, a a girl in her very young life who was captured and taken into captivity, perhaps had her parents killed by the Syrian army, is now serving the leader of the Syrian army. And in an act of compassion towards him, she alerts him to the fact that there was a prophet among her people who was known to heal. And so Naaman goes and he seeks out the prophet Elisha and finds him. And Elisha says to him, I will heal you. The Lord will heal you. But what you have to do is humble yourself, go down to the Jordan River and dip yourself in there seven times. Well, this was humiliating. Leaders of Syrian armies did not dip themselves in water at the request of Jewish prophets. And so he found this to be offensive, but eventually was persuaded to do so. And when he did, in obedience, he came out, and as the text tells us, his skin was made new like the skin of a little child, and he was completely clean. The next place that baptism surfaces would be when Jesus Christ himself is baptized. You see, John the Baptist and others were in the process of allowing Jews to be baptized. And this requires some explanation because it was very unusual for Jews to get baptized. Why would a Jew get baptized? The answer was that baptism, even in the Jewish mindset, was part of conversion. Perhaps you didn't know this, but if you were a Gentile, you could actually convert to Judaism. And what they would do is they would put you through a ceremony. First of all, you'd be circumcised, then you'd be baptized, and then you'd offer a sacrifice. Circumcision, baptism, and sacrifice. So a Gentile in the Old Covenant could become a Jew and could become a full member of that nation with all of the rights and privileges, part of that covenant people, and an aspect of his conversion was baptism. And in your New Testament, the word baptism is coming from one of two Greek words, either bapto, which meant to dip something, or baptizo, which was to fully immerse it or even to drown. And whenever the reference is made to those who were baptized by way of conversion or identification with Christ, it was to fully immerse them. They went down into water and came up out of water. And so when Jesus comes to John the Baptist, who is baptizing in the wilderness in the Jordan where there was much water, John the Baptist rightfully says, no, you should not be baptized by me. I should be baptized by you. And do you remember Jesus' response? He said, no, I need to be baptized by you in order to fulfill all what? Righteousness. Why? Because Jesus Christ came to live the life that you and I were called to live, a life of all righteousness. And even though he himself never sinned, he went through all the steps of a righteous life in order that both his active and passive righteousness could be imputed to you when your sin was imputed to him. After that time, we see baptism commonly done for those who were converted to Christ after his resurrection and ascension after he entered into the Holy of Holies, as it were, representing the fulfillment of everything that the priesthood and the sacrifices looked forward to. His ascension not merely being his return to heaven, but his return to finally complete everything that he said he would do for us perfectly that that whole Old Testament system pointed to. 
And afterwards, when people put their faith in Christ, for example, in Acts 2, when 3,000 in one day were saved, they were immediately baptized. They immediately identified with him in his death and burial and in his resurrection to newness of life and to perfect cleansing. And then later on in Acts chapter 8, there's that wonderful example of the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember him? He's riding in his chariot and he's coming back from Jerusalem after he had worshipped. He's an Ethiopian eunuch. Ethiopians weren't allowed to go very far onto the Temple Mount. Did you know that? There was a gate that kept them out called the Gate of the Gentiles. And there was a sign on it that said, if you came any further, you have yourself to blame for your ensuing death. That's what it said. You talk about discriminatory. You talk about a church that was not seeker-sensitive. That would be the temple. I mean, imagine if there were certain pews that you weren't allowed to sit in here at this church and it said, if you do, you have yourself to blame for your ensuing death. You likely would not leave a favorable Yelp review. Those people are not friendly. But this Ethiopian eunuch, he's coming back, he's in the chariots. He's not only a Gentile and therefore not allowed in, but he's also a eunuch, which, look it up, means that you are not among those who are considered whole and therefore able to worship as the rest. And so he's going along, reading the book of Isaiah. Now, I don't know if he had also read the book of Jeremiah, which said an Ethiopian can't change his skin color, but I'm sure he's wondering what is going on in this book of Isaiah. Because when Philip, led by the Holy Spirit, runs up to the chariot, he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, how can I unless somebody teaches me? And so Philip teaches him, and he begins to understand that this passage of the great servant is of Jesus Christ, the one who just earlier was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem. He realizes he's the Messiah. He puts his faith in that Savior, and he is saved. And what does Philip do right away? He takes him down, and he baptizes him. You see, baptism was a ritual, yes, but it pointed to something far greater What is the fulfillment in Christ? Well, it is fulfilled when in Matthew 3.15, he says, I do all of this to fulfill all righteousness. Baptism points to a righteousness. Let me say that again. Baptism points to a righteousness. When you are baptized, it is a testimony that the righteousness of Christ has been applied to you. Far be it from us to allow baptism ceremony to become a story about us. Baptism is a testimony about Christ. And if we begin to see baptism as a testimony of the glory of the redemption that we have in the righteousness of Christ then we are going to transform the way baptisms are done, even in a church like ours, and we are going to be using it as a way to remind one another of the finished work that we are clean. In John 13, when Jesus says to Peter, you are clean, he's talking about a spiritual cleansing. When somebody experiences baptism, They are giving an outward manifestation of the inward reality of their being clean. This is so important. The application for the church is merely this. Our testimonies are about Christ, not just about our changed behavior. They are about the new life that we have. We have the same new spiritual life that corresponds to the new physical skin that Naaman had. Newness clean, 
born again. These are the words that are used to describe those who have been buried with Christ in his death and then raised with him in his resurrection. And might I add, anticipating the day when he returns and to bring us then into the fullness of the joy and the rest that comes from that association. Now, if we go back to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, we see an example of how this ties back to Noah. I think it's an appropriate way to transition to our next point. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3. Beginning in verse 18, Peter says this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few baptized into, immersed into which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this. You see that? He says baptism. The baptism that you see practiced in the church corresponds to this. What's the this? The this of being put into something that protects you when the judgment comes. We don't no longer have to worry about the judgment coming in the form of a flood. In fact, God made a covenant with Noah saying that would never happen again. The great judgment that we would fear is the condemnation that comes down upon those who rightly deserve to be judged. And they're not put into a wooden box. No, they are put into Christ himself, protected in him. That's the baptism that corresponds to what Noah did. And he says, it now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers being subjected to him. Beloved, just consider that for a moment. He is saying to us that baptism ought to be a testimony of the fact that the one who stands before this local assembly and declares their affiliation to and loyalty to and rescue by Jesus Christ has been baptized into him and therefore rescued by him. That, that, that salvation means that Christ has taken them, as it were, with him into the very holy of holies, has subjected all authority under him, holds them and preserves them and protects them and clothes them in his righteousness. It is so much more than merely a testimony about how you're a better person now. It's all about what Christ did. And that's why baptism, I think, needs to be done in the context of the local church because it reminds the body that this is what truly unites us. Those from every walk of life, different ethnicities, different strata within the socioeconomic scale, but unified in one thing and one thing alone, and that is their connection to Christ. So not only baptism as an ordinance left for us, but also communion. This is the second one, communion. What is the context? Well, if you go back to John 13, again, the context for communion ultimately was this very last Passover celebrated with the disciples. You see, Jesus gathered them together for the Passover, 
Uh, The Passover was one of the few feasts that were practiced by the Old Testament Jews where everybody was invited to come and be a part of it. Uh, It was something where everything in the economy shut down and people celebrated. If you go back into Leviticus 23, you can see there were seven major feasts. You see, the rhythms of the Old Testament life was that of feasting and fasting. In fact, you were commanded by God to set apart 10% of your income for the purpose of celebrating the feasts. Now just pause for a moment and consider that. Imagine if by divine law, you were required every year to set aside 10% of your income. Think for a moment how much money you made last year. 10% of your income. 10% of that income was to be set aside for the upkeep of the priesthood. For the Levitical tribe who had no land and who had nothing, they lived off the generosity of the people. Another 10%. We're up to 20% now. Another 10% was set aside for the purpose of celebrating the feasts. You are required by law to spend 10% of your income every year on feasting. That's not a bad law, is it? You're thinking, I could, I could, I could work with that. There was a third tithe every three years. You were supposed to take that 10% and it was to be divided up over three years and given to the poor. But that second one is very interesting. You are to take 10% of your income and use it to celebrate. And the Bible commands the Old Testament Jews that they are to spend it on meat and wine and strong drink and have a major party seven times a year. Seven times a year, these feasts would last for the whole week and you didn't do any work and all you did was sit around with your friends and family and feast and delight yourself in the glory of the goodness of God. How would you like it if we reinstituted that? We're at seven different points throughout the year. I tell you, take the whole week off, divide up your income by 10, use it seven different times, and spend it on whatever your heart desires. Throw the biggest party you can with your friends and your family. Bring them all together. Those who have made a lot of money, they get to provide more. Those who didn't make as much, they give a little less. It doesn't matter. It's this huge potluck, and you just do that for a week. That would be great. I don't have the authority, but I've thought about instituting it here. That's the context of where Jesus enters the room and he says to his people, you might notice that there's no lamb here. I mean, that was the normal centerpiece of the Passover. Uh, That was what everything looked back to because it was at that time where the angel of death passed over the family's homes where they'd obeyed God and they'd sacrificed the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost. But there was no lamb there. Why? Because Christ said, I am the lamb. But he also says, after he gives him the cup, he says, I won't drink of the vine. I will not drink wine with you again until I do it in the kingdom, at my return, at the marriage supper of the lamb. He says, the time will come when we will feast together again. You see everything fulfilled in him and looking forward to the day when he makes all of these shadows a reality. All of these echoes go back to the source and he says, you will enjoy it with me forever. The early church understood that, by the way. You see, the early church abandoned a lot of those feasts and instead they replaced it with what we call communion. And we know that because if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you see an example of it. In fact, it is called the love feast. Now, why is that important? It's important because I think it shows us how far we have come from what God originally intended communion to be. Today, what we have is a little 
broken piece of cracker and a little mouthful of non-alcoholic grape juice. Now, I don't mean to be critical of that, except that it's hardly what you'd call a feast, now would it? What happened in the early church? What happened in the early church was that they would gather together, usually on a weekly basis, and they would have a feast. It was called the love feast. And those who were wealthy and could afford to bring more would bring much. And those who didn't have anything would bring perhaps nothing, but all would be fed, all would be cared for. All would enjoy it together. And I know that it was certainly more than crackers and welches because what happened is that there were people who had the money and the time to arrive early and they ate the food and drank the wine and by the time the poor arrived, they were drunk and full. And Paul condemns them for that. He says, listen, you need to wait for each other. He doesn't say stop having a feast. He says wait for one another. You see, what we celebrate at communion, though it is not a feast, it should at least remind us that in the days of old it was a feast, and it was a time where people gathered together for the purpose of celebrating the finished work of Jesus Christ And as they did that, they would feast together, reminding themselves that one day they'll do that with him in the kingdom. And they would wait for one another and they would enjoy true fellowship with each other. And everybody who had much would share with those who had little and those who had little would enjoy what those who had much would bring. And they would come together as one. And they would celebrate the goodness of Christ. This replaced all of those feasts in Leviticus 23. It is the true communion that we enjoy. And what's the application then for the church? The application for the church is that we need to understand that even this communion table ought to represent a genuine fellowshipping together, a unity in Christ, and a waiting for one another. Why is that important? Well, it ties very closely to the fulfillment in Christ If there's one thing that I have come to see, and I'm sharing with you just as your pastor, so this is just us talking. Well, it's me talking. Some people take the warnings that Paul gave in 1 Corinthians 11 about examining yourself and about not eating in an unworthy manner. And they interpret that as an obligation to, whether intentionally or unintentionally, heap guilt upon the people who have assembled to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And whether they mean to or not, they can inadvertently cause people to be so morbidly introspective that they really begin to doubt whether or not they're even saved. Because they start comparing their life to their own religious expectations and they come in on a Sunday morning where communion is being held and they say, I've had a really bad week and therefore I'm examining myself and I'm seeing how sinful I am and I'm heaping scorn and guilt and shame and maybe I shouldn't even take communion because I'm not right with God. Brothers and sisters, that is precisely the opposite of what Paul is teaching here. 
we gather together and we celebrate the Lord's Supper because he's made you clean. Because the only examining that needed to happen back then was the examining as to whether or not the people were rushing in and celebrating this feast without waiting for their brothers and sisters to be there to celebrate it together. It was a celebration of forgiveness, not morbid introspection in the search of guilt. If you leave from the communion table feeling more guilty and more shameful than when you arrived, then the opposite has occurred as what should have happened. What should happen is this is a time where that bread is taken and the cup is taken and the reminder is made that Christ has fulfilled every obligation of the law on your behalf, that he has granted you his righteousness and that your sins, past, present, future, are canceled out once for all on the cross. That when you go back to John 13, you become like Peter. Yes, your feet get soiled walking through this dirty world, but the reality is your feet are washed simply in the ongoing cleansing of the grace of God, but you are fully clean because he's made you clean. You see, communion is not a funeral. I don't know why all the communion songs are in one of those keys where you feel like you're at a funeral. Can somebody please write some happy communion songs? It should be the greatest celebration we have when we gather together. What has happened? What's happened is that over the years, the church has diverged from the idea of a celebration and a feast, and they have actually adopted what the Roman Catholic Church did in the pit of the darkness of the Dark Ages and made it something where you have to come and receive some kind of forgiveness from a priest in order to make your sins go away because the body and the blood of Jesus Christ are were actually present there. and You're not even allowed to touch it. You see how we have failed to truly reform from that and go back to what it really was in the early days, a time of celebration. May this be a place, may this be a church where you don't go out of here after a morning like this weighed down and guilty but rather lift it up and exulting in the glory of the reality of your forgiveness and the grace of Jesus Christ poured out upon you. Why do we do it regularly? Because we need to be reminded of that. Because we drag ourselves in here on some Sunday mornings feeling defeated and we need to be reminded that the battle's already been won. Amen? Amen. Baptism, communion. What about the ordinances? Well, there were, or what about the offices? Those are the ordinances. What about the offices? There were two offices that the church was told to have, and that is of deacons and of elders. And I give them to you in that order because that's how they showed up chronologically. You remember in the early church, there were apostles. They were the ones who had a direct connection to God and his revelation. And they had to dedicate themselves to the preaching of the word and prayer. But as the church grew, thousands of people were there. And all of a sudden, the very practical needs of the church began to overwhelm them. And so they asked the believers to find deacons. People who could serve the practical needs of the church. Because it wasn't something the apostles were supposed to do. 
It didn't mean that that was below the apostles. It just meant it wasn't what the apostles were assigned to do. God didn't say one was more important than the other. He just said one was assigned to one group and one to the other. And so people were brought forward and they were appointed as deacons. The word deacons, you need to remember, is the word servant. Let's just understand that here, the truth in its context. It's a word that means servant, diakonos. It's a term that's used 29 times in the New Testament. It is used of men. It is used of women. It is even used of apostles. They are the ones who were the servants. They are, in fact, the deacons, the servants of the gospel. It is even used of the Lord Jesus himself. Now, as you know, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1 give certain qualifications of a deacon. A deacon is supposed to be somebody of noble character. They are supposed to know the word of God. They are supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Those are characteristics of the men and women who fill the role. And I believe that 1 Timothy 3 is a reference both to men and women. I think that you have the elders described, those men, and then you have male deacons described, and then unlike the translation in the ESV, I don't think those are the wives of the deacons. I think those are women deacons. In Romans chapter 16, we're going to talk about Phoebe, or Phoebe, I think as it's properly pronounced, and I believe that she was a deacon in the church. There is no description of elders' wives. I don't think it makes much sense that there would be a description of a deacon's wife because it's important, but not an elder's wife. However, if there were qualifications necessary, it would be for deacon men and deacon women, and there's no qualification for elder women because there are no elders who are allowed to be women. It's pretty straightforward. But where is this particular office, if you will, fulfilled in Christ? We go back again to John 13. Not only is this upper room discourse a place where we see put on display the cleansing of the baptism and immersion into Christ. Not only is it a place where we see the Passover fulfilled in communion, but it is also a place where we see service rendered. It is Jesus who sets aside that outer garment and he puts on the towel of a slave or a servant. If you go over into Philippians chapter 2, you have kind of a cosmic version of that where he temporarily sets aside the outer robe, as it were, of his glory and comes down to earth to be born as a human being a helpless one at that, inhabiting the body that is plagued with all of the curses that come from sin, even though he himself knew no sin. In a more physical way, he takes off his outer robe, strips down to his undergarments, and then he puts on the towel around his waist, and in a state of humiliation, gets down on his knees, and he washes the feet of his disciples. Not only because his disciples did not feel like they could possibly lower themselves to do that for each other, but because God in his providence allows Jesus to do that for the purpose of demonstrating that if there was ever the ultimate servant, it is him. You can never lead until you can serve. It's very important because he tells them that they are to model this, that they are to show that they understand this. In fact, in John chapter 13 and verse 16, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. He says, if I do this for you, 
then it should be expected that you will do this for others. He's the ultimate servant. This is fulfilled perfectly in him. There is an even more vivid example of that if you go over to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 10. Look over at Mark chapter 10. This is one of those records in Scripture where perhaps the characters who are in view wish that it had not happened because the story is now enshrined in the Holy Scriptures forever and ever. Uh, But this is the time where James and John, with the help of their mother, try to occupy the two highest seats in the kingdom. And you know what you do if you, as a man, cannot get the position that you're looking for, you send your mom. And, and, and you know, she, she was a helicopter parent like many today. You know, she thought that her little James and Johnny were the best ever, and so she's going to go and she's going to set Jesus straight, and she's going to tell him that they need to be first and second in the kingdom. Well, he sets her straight quite quickly and explains that that's not something that he is going to do, certainly not there at that time. But he did say this, and I think it's very important for us to see it. He talks about the difference between the rulers of the Gentiles and the rulers of his kingdom. He says in verse 43 of chapter 10 of the Gospel of Mark, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your, what? Servant. Must be your servant. It's the word diakonos. It's the word deacon. And whoever would be first among you must be a doulos of all. To be number one, you've got to be number zero. To be first, to be great, you must be a servant. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ fulfills what it means to be a deacon. He takes the towel and he meets the immediate needs. That's what a deacon does. A deacon meets the immediate needs in the body by acts of compassion. What's the application in the church? Well, we look for men and women who are willing to take on the practical needs that are in the church and meet those needs, address those needs. Uh, This is what it means to be trained up to do the work of the ministry, Ephesians 4.12. Why do the elders concentrate on the ministry of the word and prayer so that they can build up the body to do the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry is the work we do for one another. It's the, it's the everyday sanctification that happens from sharpening one another. It's why we've said before in an earlier series that the deployment of your gift as a believer is less likely to occur on a Lord's Day Sunday morning and more likely to occur in a fellowship group or other gathering throughout the week when you're able to use your gifts of teaching and exhortation, of mercy and helps and giving, of service in general, of leadership, as you care for one another and you sanctify one another and confess your sins one to another in the community that exists outside of the corporate gathering for worship on Sunday. We need deacons to be at work on a Sunday morning, yes, but also at work all throughout the week in the care of the flock. Whether that means ministering to people who are shut in, ministering to the sick, providing meals, visitation, even doing some of the work of the ministry that allows everything else to function well and smoothly. Each of these roles can be filled by a deacon. And the reason we do that is we're no greater than our master. 
The other office in the church is the elder. Now, there is a difference between elders and deacons. The main difference is that elders are called upon to teach God's word, and they're called upon to exercise authority. Teaching and authority go together. That's what Paul means when he says that women are not allowed to preach or teach in the church. He's not saying they're not allowed to speak. He's not saying they're not allowed to teach, because even women have the gift of teaching. They're just not allowed to use it in the regular gathering of the church on the Lord's Day uh, Lord's Day morning when somebody stands up authoritatively and declares to the church the word of God. Because with the teaching comes the authority. The two are connected, the preaching and the authority. But that's a defining characteristic of an elder. Now, the biblical context, the truth to be understood is simply this. An elder is not merely somebody who is part of a management team. Let's understand that. The elder is not somebody who, who simply has gifts in the area of corporate management or somebody who has financial resources or somebody who in some way or another uh, would be viewed by the world as an effective leader. In fact, so much of what goes on in the books today that are trying to inform pastors of how to lead, so much of the material seems to be taken completely from the corporate world and training pastors how to be CEOs, not shepherds training pastors how to run a company, not serve a church. And so often I am told that there are surveys done by certain people who want to use that as an evidence that pastors ought to abandon what the scriptures tell us to do and instead take up what the corporate world tells us would work instead because that would grow our church, it would build our brand and it would expand our influence. We would have more followers. Well, that's precisely not the way that elders are described in the Bible. So turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, and I want to go there. I know I could go to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, but I've taught on those before, and you can look up those messages if you want. I'm not sure it's as critical for us to understand the mechanics of being an elder. I want you to understand the spirit of being an elder. 1 Peter chapter 5 is a beautiful description. It begins with these words, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight or authority, not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, notice the connection. How does Christ fulfill what elders are meant to point to? It is that he is the chief shepherd. He is the chief elder. He is the ultimate example of what it means to lovingly care for the flock of God. And when he, the chief shepherd, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory, the reward that comes from being obedient to him. Now, where would Peter have learned this? Was that Peter's nature? Was Peter by nature a a tender and caring shepherd who would never in a million years domineer over people? Was Peter the kind of person who was very content to be on the sidelines and just wait and listen and contemplate and perceive when it would be wise to speak, if at all? Of course not. Peter 
as he is commonly referred to, was the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. Where did he get converted? How could he write this later in life? The answer comes in John chapter 20. Look over there. John chapter 20. And just to show that I'm not infallible, I meant 21. Although John 20 is great as well. I highly recommend it. Just not for what I'm actually sharing with you this morning. John 21, I meant to say. Peter, at this point, has given up. He's gone back to fishing. Christ's been crucified. The movement is over. The rebellion's been crushed. Their leader is dead. They didn't go where he told them to go. They've gone fishing. Gone back to the old way of life. And Jesus encounters them. And in the midst of their rebellion, disobedience, he begins to restore them in grace. And after providing fish for them and feeding them, verse 15 picks up the story. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you, do you love me more than fishing? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Describe what an elder and a shepherd is supposed to be. He says, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, it's a word for shepherding, shepherd my sheep. And then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, perhaps reminding him of the three times he had rejected him. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. Do you? And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Beloved, a shepherd is one who feeds sheep. It's very interesting to me that sheep are animals that you don't necessarily feed. You don't go and get sheep feed. You don't throw a pile of sheep feed on the back of the pickup truck and drive into the field. What do you do with sheep? You lead sheep. Sheep feed themselves. The sheep just go out there and they eat whatever's in front of them. You don't have to worry about feeding sheep. You have to worry about leading sheep. You don't provide the food. You just make sure that where they get the food is a good place to get food. Your job as a shepherd is to find good pastures, to model what it's like from the chief shepherd in Psalm 23, who leads us by still waters and into the good pastures. And that's what you feed them with, is the good, nourishing truth of God's word. And so what you have here is an example of what it means to lead and to feed. The elders care for the flock by using the authority that is given to them by God to provide for and to protect the flock. They lead them and they feed them. And not by packaging the food and putting it in front of them necessarily, but by guiding them to a place where they will feast upon that which is good. This is fulfilled in Christ, our great shepherd, the one in Psalm 23 who leads us and cares for us and provides for us. It is also seen there in John chapter 13 where Jesus loves his disciples in a way that only he can love them and loves them till the end. He loves them in the greatest way possible by giving them all the things that are truly good for them. 
Well, what's the application in the church? Well, the reality is that we all serve. Some of us serve in a more corporate sense, and some of us serve on a more individual level. The ones who serve in the corporate sense serve by worshiping God through teaching, by loving the flock through leading, and by exercising the delegated authority that comes from Christ through his church to the elders that they might teach the authoritative word of God and exercise the authoritative rule of Christ under his authority, not an authority of their own and not domineering over others. This is the nature of the ordinances and the offices. Baptism, therefore, is a sign of cleansing, the testimony to the righteousness of Christ given to us. Communion is a time of fellowship and a, and a waiting for one another as we celebrate the forgiveness that each other has ultimately in the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, having fulfilled all righteousness, having taken on all of our sin upon himself and granting us his righteousness. The offices of the church are important because they were established by God. For those who are serving as deacons, they are the ministers who care for the practical needs. So the elders who are of like character accept that they have the authority to lead and the command to teach and dedicate themselves to that high and holy task of bringing the truth as a way of feeding and defending the truth as a way of protecting. And if a church functions according to that formula, then it will be healthy, it will be strong, it will be gospel-centered, and it will be filled with joy. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the great privilege of understanding these truths this morning, for allowing your word to guide us to see the long history of baptism and what it pointed to and how it is now fulfilled, for all the feasts in the Old Testament and what they pointed to and how you have fulfilled them as well for the great care and humility that you showed in serving others and expecting that of us too, and for the wonderful care and protection that you offer us as the chief shepherd, leading us by still waters and green pastures. Oh, you care for us with such love. May we be truly thankful for it. Lord, as we prepare now to receive these elements, we understand that this is not a feast, perhaps like it was in the early church. But evidently, even during that feast, there was a time when they paused to consider eating of bread and drinking of wine together corporately at the same time in order to distinctly remember the work that you have done for us. May today be a day of celebration. Perhaps the first time that somebody receives these elements not for fear of receiving them in error, not for fear of being condemned, not feeling the weight of judgment and guilt and shame and sin, but rather to feel what it's like to have all the weight of that released. As they hold in their hand these little symbols of the infinite glory of what was accomplished for us in your sacrifice.
So may today be a day of transformation in our thinking for our good,